One of the missions of the United States Army Special Forces is to win the hearts and the minds of the people. Special Forces adopted this mission early in their existence because they knew that if you win the hearts and the minds, you win the people. What people believe in their minds shapes what they embrace in their hearts. What people believe in their minds and embrace in their heart determines the way they live their lives. Satan knows this this well, and this is why there's a battle going on today for the hearts and the minds of the people. Satan knows if he can control what people think, then he'll control what people embrace in their hearts. And if he controls what people think and what they embrace in their hearts, he'll control their lives the way they live on the day in and the day out way of their lives. His great desire is for their values, priorities, actions, reactions and beliefs be built on something, anything other than upon God's will and God's want as revealed in God's word. Satan wages this battle through culture and through education. Every book, every song, every news article, every magazine article, every TV show, every movie, and anything else you can watch, hear, or read has a way in which it views the world. The way they view the world determines what they think in their minds, embrace in their hearts, and how they live in their lives. Not only does everything we can watch, hear, or read have a way in which it views the world, but it wants us to view the world the same way it does. Everything we watch, everything we hear, everything we read is trying to shape the way we view the world. These things are trying to convince us to think the way we think. So we'll embrace in our hearts what they've embraced in theirs. So we'll have the same values, the same priorities, the same actions, react to stressors in the same way and have the same beliefs they have. This battle rages for the minds of our children. I once heard a pastor say, It infuriated him to hear parents say they weren't going to tell their kids what to think or what to believe. His reasoning was everything and everyone else in their kids' lives is telling them what to think and what to believe. It's absolutely true. Everything our children watch, everything they hear, everything they read is promoting to them a way to view the world with the goal of convincing them to view it in the exact same way. Everything our kids watch, hear, or read is promoting to them a value system, a set of moral guidelines, and a set of beliefs with the goal of convincing them to embrace this value system, these moral guidelines, and this set of beliefs. This is seen in the influences that seek to make cool more important than character, success more important than the soul, and sexual conquests and sexual attractiveness as more important than purity and devotion to Jesus. When parents refuse to try to teach their kids what to think and what to believe, they turn them over to the culture who will not fail to take advantage of this. But the battle doesn't just rage for the minds of our children. The battle rages for our minds as well. Everything and everyone in our lives is telling us what to think as well. Everything we watch, everything we hear, everything we read is promoting to us a way to view the world with the goal of convincing us to to view the world in the exact same way. Everything we watch, everything we hear and everything we read is promoting to us a value system, a set of moral guidelines and a set of beliefs with the goal of convincing us to embrace this value system, these moral guidelines and this set of beliefs. This is seen in the influences that say success is more important than the soul, that our immediate pleasure is more important than our covenants to our spouses, and that our happiness is more important than our commitment 
to Jesus. There's a battle raging for the hearts and the minds of every person in this room, for the hearts and minds of every person we know and every person we love and every person we care for. So how do we fight this battle and how do we win this battle? So what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks is part of our study on spiritual warfare. Open your Bible to 2 Corinthians 10. Verses 3 through 5 is what we're going to read. Should be on page 887 in your pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. The Apostle writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The title of the message tonight is The Battle for the Mind. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We ask you tonight to help us lay aside the cares of life we may have brought in to lay aside anything else that's going on. And just for this brief moment in time to be entirely focused upon you. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would come and that he would begin to take your word and make it living and active in our lives. Father, that he would lead us into all truth and that he would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word tonight. Father, you know what's going on in our lives and you know how this word needs to land on us and what it needs to do in us. And we ask you to do that. Father, where we need convicting, convict us. Where we need strengthening, strengthen us. Where we need encouraging, encourage us. And Father, all of us need transforming, so transform us. Let your word and spirit work together tonight. And just burn away the junk and the dross out of our lives. That we would be pure vessels for Jesus. Who could accurately accurately reflect who he is and what he's like. As we go out into a lost and a dying world. Let us shine as bright lights in the midst of this broken and hurting world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul talks about spiritual warfare with a focus being on our minds. Now the weapons we, we battle are mighty through God for the destruction of fortresses to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, there are basically two parts to this battle as the Apostle Paul lays it out here. First, there are fortresses, and then there are the weapons that destroy the fortresses. If we're going to win the battle for the hearts and the minds of the people, we have to understand both. If we're going to to win the battle for our own souls and for our own lives, we have to understand both. So it's not what we're going to do is we're going to focus on just the fortress aspect of it to understand what a a fortress of the mind is. For if we folk, if we don't understand that, we will not know how to destroy it, how to take thoughts captive and how to tear them down. We're going to ask and answer three questions. What is a fortress? Where do fortresses come from? Why are fortresses dangerous? So the first question is, what is a fortress? Now, the traditional translation of the word my Bible calls a fortress is stronghold. And the most common way I've ever heard a stronghold explained is that a stronghold is a sin that has a strong hold on our lives. And while this is partially true, 
It's really not the picture the Apostle Paul is painting here. A fortress is something that is contrary to God's will, and it does have a strong hold on our lives. But the way the Apostle writes it out here, the action itself is not the problem. The real problem is the thinking behind the action. According to what the Apostle Paul has it laid out here, there is a thought process that produces the actions. And the thought process is the main problem. The thought process is what Paul means by fortress. A fortress is a worldly or a sinful thought process that produces worldly and sinful actions. Fortresses are built in our minds over time. And they're difficult to overcome. Now, Paul uses a couple of different words to describe fortresses and how they're built up. First, in verse 5, he uses the word arguments. An argument is a set or a reason or a set of reasons given with the goal of convincing others that an action or an idea is right. right. So an argument is a reason or a set of reasons given with the goal of convincing others that an action or an idea is right. Or wrong, depending. And then it talks about arrogance. Arguments and all arrogance. Some translations may say a high thing. Others may say a lofty opinion. All of this is kind of saying the same thing. It is an opinion that has been elevated above all other opinions. It has an elevated place in the person's thinking so that anything challenging it or contradicting it is immediately dismissed. Also, in many cases, it gives those who hold it a sense of superiority over those who do not hold it. So strongholds are built on arguments. These reasons why I believe the way I believe. These reasons why I live the way I live. These reasons why what you're saying is wrong is actually right if I do it. And these arguments are arrogance. They are lofty opinions. They are above all. They are the standard. And anything that challenges it or anything that contradicts it is immediately dismissed without any thought, any reason, or any checking it against anything else. And those who hold these arguments and these lofty opinions typically think they're better than others, smarter than others, because of the arguments and the reasons that they have. So a fortress is a reason or a set of reasons someone can give to explain why a false belief system, a sinful action or sinful inaction is not only acceptable, but correct. Now, the word fortress provides a powerful image of what Paul is describing. A fortress is a built up fortified encampment meant to protect those who are inside. Fortresses were built so people could go inside and be protected from the enemy on the outside. Similarly, spiritual fortresses are built to protect the builder from being confronted by truths that challenge what they think, how they believe, or how they live. Spiritual fortresses enable those who think, believe, and live in ways contrary to God's word feel safe as they continue to think, believe, and live in ways contrary to God's word. 
Now, we'll talk about this in a minute, but people who have fortresses may be unbelievers or they may be believers. It may be someone who professes faith in Jesus but lives in ways contrary to God's word. And when you say, but the Bible says, they'll say, well, yes, I understand that, but thus, thus, and thus is why it's okay for me. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? You've wondered, how on earth could you believe that when God's word clearly says this? It is because they have built a fortress in their mind. They have an argument. They have a lofty opinion. And it explains to them and to you, if you ask, why the way they live, despite being contrary to God's word, is not only acceptable, but it is right. Spiritual fortresses often enable those who think, believe, and live in ways contrary to God's words to feel superior to those who embrace God's word and God's truth as the standard for living. Again, this can be seen in believers and unbelievers alike. Or professed believers and unbelievers alike. And unbelievers, clearly, they're smarter than us. Because they, they haven't fallen for an old book and the old morality. But for, unbelie- or for believers, those who profess to be believers in Christ and have these fortresses built up. What they'll explain, the reason they feel superior is because they have a special deal with God. God works with them in a way he doesn't work with us. That They're a little bit better than us. Or perhaps they understand grace a little bit better than we do. Brother, we're under grace, not the law. I can't believe you're trying to live by the law like that. All of these things are ways these arrogant, lofty opinions make them feel superior to those who say, well, the Bible says it. And I think that's kind of how we ought to do it. So that's what a fortress is. Now, the question is, where do fortresses come from? Now, there are many places that a fortress comes from. Uh, We wouldn't have time to deal with all of them in one message. That would be we could do a whole series on just arguments and lofty opinions that people latch on to to build fortresses in their minds. But there is one, and and we may talk about another in another week, but for tonight, we're only going to look at one. And it's the one I feel It is likely the most dangerous. And the fortresses, the the most dangerous way a fortress is built, in my opinion, is when we hear God's word or we read God's word, but we do not heed God's word. Right? Fortresses are built in our minds when we hear God's word or read God's word without heeding God's word. And again, I think this is true for believers, professing believers and unbelievers alike. One of the the great myths, the great lies people believe when it comes to God's word is what I call the myth of neutrality. And the myth of neutrality says we can be neutral about Jesus, about his word, about the gospel and the appeal of the gospel. Those who believe this lie likely would not consider themselves hostile toward Jesus, toward the word or toward the gospel. They would likely say they have never rejected it. They have simply chosen not to choose. So when it comes to the word, they hear the word, they read the word. They see what it's calling on them to do, to believe, to think, to act. 
And they don't say, oh, no, I would never do that. That's stupid. But neither do they say, yes, I'm going to bring my life into conformity to God's word. They just say, I'll ponder that or I'll think about that or I'll pray about that. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, I've decided not to decide. I've chosen in this moment not to choose. I'm not rejecting it. Neither am I embracing it. I'm I'm Switzerland. I'm completely neutral. And and they may do this in the appeal of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed. They're urged to repent of their sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're not going to say no to Jesus, at least in their minds. But they're not going to say yes to Jesus either. They're going to be Switzerland. They're going to be neutral. And in their minds, this is acceptable. The reality is. This is a complete myth. There is no way to be neutral toward Jesus, toward his word, toward the gospel. Jesus said those who are not for us are what? Against us. The great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said the same gospel which softens hearts, hardens clay. So every time we hear the word. Every time we read the word, every time it is given to us in one way or another, we always respond. There is no way not to respond. A a response of neutrality is, in effect, a rejection of the word, a rejection of Jesus, a rejection of the gospel. Everyone. Responds to God's word every time they hear it, every time they read it, or every time it is shared with them. And the way we respond determines whether or not we build strongholds in our minds. The word says it this way, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. Now, one of the reasons this verse is so important, because it explicitly states the importance of putting God's word into practice. Now, doing in this case doesn't have to be a physical action. Right? God's word doesn't always call upon us to physically change or physically pick something up. But if God's word says this belief is right, And our belief is wrong. To be a doer of the word is to change our beliefs to bring them into line with what God's word says. That is still a doer of the word. A, A doer of the word is if God's word says this attitude is wrong and we have that attitude, that we change that attitude. It's not a physical action, but it's still being a doer of the word. But what happens... When we hear the word, but we don't do the word. We deceive ourselves. When we hear or read without heeding, we deceive ourselves. And here's how we deceive ourselves. We begin to make up excuses as to why this particular issue doesn't apply to us. Why we don't have to do whatever it is God's word says 
to do. Only we don't call them excuses. We call them reasons. Here's the reason why my attitude, God's word called sinful, is righteous when I have it. Here's the reason my belief, God's word says is wrong, is right when I have it. Here's the reason the way I talk that God's word says is evil is righteous when I do it. Here's the reason this doesn't apply to me. And these reasons are developed to convince people our action or inaction or belief is right. But of course, the first person we must convince of this is ourselves. We must convince ourselves that we're right in our Whatever. And then once we have convinced ourselves, we use that then to set out to convince others. Well, developing a set of reasons to explain our action, inaction, or belief should sound familiar. Because it's what the Apostle Paul called an argument in verse 5. It is also a lofty opinion. It is also arrogance because we're exalting ourselves and our thoughts and our ideas above what God has revealed in his word. And so every time we come up with a reason why we don't have to to do the book says to do. We're building a fortress in our minds to protect ourselves against God. And his word and his truth. So what's the danger though of a fortress? It's what they are. That's how they come. But why are they important? Why do they need to be cast down? What is the danger in a, is a fortress? Verse 5. Raised against the knowledge of God. The danger of a spiritual fortress is that they are raised against the knowledge of God. The danger of a spiritual fortress is they keep people from knowing God or they keep people from living for God. As I mentioned, fortresses can be in believers and unbelievers alike. And for the most part, I've always assumed it was an unbeliever that would have a fortress in their mind raised up against the knowledge of God. Earlier, the Apostle Paul mentioned unbelievers being blinded to the gospel by the devil. And that seems to be a logical application of what he's saying here. And that's clearly an, an valid application. It is not the only application, nor does it seem to be the primary application of this particular passage. Paul is at this point... Primarily addressing the Corinthian believers. And and he does consider them to be believers. He has called them sanctified and saints in Christ Jesus. They're erring to be sure. They have issues to be sure. They are Christians to be sure. And so Paul is using this saying these 
sanctified saints, which sounds crazy to say that sanctified saints have built spiritual fortresses in their minds, but they had. And they had built these fortresses to justify their false beliefs and their sinful actions. Believers and unbelievers alike can build spiritual fortresses in their minds to keep them from knowing God and to keep them from living for God. I'll show you how it works. We'll start with unbelievers and then we'll move to what it looks like in a believer. With unbelievers, the danger of a spiritual fortress is it it keeps them blinded to the gospel so they never end up embracing Jesus as Savior. A fortress in the mind of an unbeliever will lead them further and further away from Jesus and his salvation. Turn to, to Romans 1. Page 857. The last of Romans 1 talks about, it really gives us a great picture of this. We won't go through the whole thing, we'll just go through parts of it. But in verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they know God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks, but became futile in their think in their reasonings. And their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind. Of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a falsehood. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, one of the first things that should stand out is that this passage details the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. But it's not against something nebulous called ungodliness and unrighteousness. It is ungodly and unrighteous people, right? Of people. That's where the wrath of God comes on on people, not on the thing, but on the person. God's wrath will be revealed against those who are ungodly and those who are unrighteous. Now, in this case, their ungodliness and their unrighteousness is evident by their suppression of the truth. They are rejecting. The truth and the primary truth they're rejecting is the truth about God. Because what is known about God is evident within them and God made it evident to them. God has not hidden the truth about himself, but he has revealed things about himself so that he can be known. And these people do not like what has been revealed about God. Now, there are According to God's word, at least four ways God has made the truth about himself known. God has revealed himself in nature. Romans 1.20, creation 
necessitates a creator. I know there is such a thing as a piano creator because there lies a piano. I know there is a creator because I look and I see creation. God's truth is revealed by our conscience. Romans 2 and 15. Unless we have seared our consciences, there is within us something that says some things are always right, some things are always wrong. That didn't come. That sort of morality didn't evolve over billions of years. That sort of morality was placed within us by a righteous and a good God. God's truth is revealed in His Word. And then God's truth is revealed in Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of what God is like. Now, the picture in these verses is that men recognize God's truth and they reject it. Or realist, actually, it says they suppress it. They repress the truth. They hinder it from going forward. This is further illustrated in verse 21. And it says that they, even though they, they knew God, they did not honor God nor give Him thanks, but became futile in their senses and their hearts were darkened. The point is, they knew there was a God. And they knew what God was like from God's revelation. But they didn't like what God was like. They didn't like the way God was revealed. And what revelation revealed about who God was and what God was like. So they came up with their own ideas about what God was like. But what does the revelation reveal to us about what God is like? And why would people not like God? Well, many things we could talk about, but one is God is sovereign. One of the... One of the things humans strive for in this life is control. We want to be in control of everything around us. We want to control people. We want to control our circumstances. We want to control our world. And there may be a time where things work out in such a way we develop an illusion of control. And we really believe we are in control of our world. And that works out well until the stock markets crash. Or natural disasters strike. Or a loved one suddenly dies. Or our marriage crumbles. Or the test results, the ordinary test results come back badly. At this point, the illusion of control is destroyed. We are not in control, but a sovereign God is. And the sovereignty of God reminds us of our own limitations. And for people who crave control, it is unacceptable for anyone else to have control. So they reject the sovereign God. God is also holy. And the absolute holiness of God is problematic because we are not holy. And the reason our lack of holiness is a problem for the holiness of God is that a part of holiness is justice. For God to be holy, He must also be just. And for God to be just, He must give sinners the judgment, the punishment 
they deserve. Which in part means we are all ultimately accountable to God. And anyone with even a measure of common sense realizes that is a fearful thought. Humans are funny. We think justice is great when other people are getting it. But when it comes to us getting justice, well, we don't like that nearly as much. If someone flames past us on Sunset Lane and they get pulled over by the police, we think, good. What a maniac. They're getting what they deserved. If we flame past someone else on Sunset and we get pulled over, though, don't the police have something better to do? I'm in a hurry. I've got things to do. Same action, same consequence, but it's unjust, it's unright when it's us. And the idea that we are accountable to a God who will not excuse our sin, nor make exceptions for our lives, well, that's intolerable. And it leads people to reject the holy God. God is omniscient. God knows everything about everything. That's what the word says. And if this is true, then what he says about humans and human nature is true. And what he says about human nature is we're all sinners. God has said our natural condition is one of condemnation and not one of salvation. God has said we are unable to do anything about our sin and his judgment apart from surrendering to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. God's omniscience also means he knows the secrets of our hearts, the thoughts that we think, and the parts of our lives we try so hard to hide. He knows the motives behind our actions, despite any verbal reasons we may give. And God's knowledge of us, our condition, our eternity, our nature, it disturbs us. And it leads us to reject the omniscient God. And God is immutable. God's character, God's nature, and God's standards will never, ever change. God will always be sovereign. God will always be holy. God will always be omniscient. God will always hold humans to the standard of righteousness given in His law. God will always punish sin. God will never make exceptions. God will never excuse anyone. God will hold you to the same standard that He holds me to. God holds every person to the same standard. And the unchanging and the unwavering nature of God, it gives hope to those who are born again disciples of Jesus. But it is horrifying 
to the unbeliever. And so they reject the immutable God. So these truths are revealed about God. It's evident. It's revealed. They're without excuse. But rather in verse 21, that honor God or give God thanks, they reject Him. And in this rejection, they become futile in their reasoning and their senseless hearts were darkened. Their thinking becomes essentially useless. And they move deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness. Now verse 22. It's kind of an interesting verse. Because it's something I think that we that we hear a lot in our day. They claim to be wise, but they become fools. So what's happening is verse 23. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a falsehood. Worshipped and served creation rather than the creator who's blessed forevermore. So here's how all of this works out. They don't like what has been revealed about God. So they, they come up with something else. They, they, they don't like the way God is. And so they recreate him in their own image. In a way that makes them feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. Now they've rejected God in doing this. And they've become futile in their thinking. Pushed further into darkness. But they justify it with an argument. They're wise. You see, they're, they're too smart to believe in a sovereign God who rules over creation. Come on. That's just not... People can't really believe something like that. That they're too smart to believe in a holy God who expects righteousness out of his people. Come on. Surely you don't think God is going to get upset and hold you to a standard, do you? Come on. What kind of God is that? I'm too smart to believe that. Well, that's arrogance and high things and lofty opinions. And they become fools in the process of this. And they exchange the truth about God for a lie that makes them feel comfortable. And they worship a creation rather than the creator. Now, the creation they worship could be an idea or a philosophy. It could be the pursuit of possessions or it could be the desires of their heart. It could be any number of things. But it's always a man-made creation. And the longer one goes in this direction, the further they move away from Jesus, and the stronger the fortress becomes. This passage would go on, and we won't look at it tonight, but it talks about God giving them over. The fortress is so strong, they are so safe from God in there, that God says, you don't want me, have it your own way. See how that works out for you. With believers, it's a little different, but it's the same end result. The the fortresses we build... Keep us from thinking the way Jesus would have us to think. 
And so we just don't live the way Jesus would have us to live. And over time, these fortresses will lead us away from Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Where do fortresses come from? They come from hearing or reading without heeding. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do the opposite. To hear or read and heed. To pay much closer attention to what has been revealed. So that we put it all into practice. And do not deceive ourselves. And he says... And this is the part that I think is so should be horrifying to us all. That if we don't, we will start to drift away. Now, the word drift. is really a horrifying picture. The author of Hebrews is painting. He's not saying to these disciples of Jesus. If you don't pay closer attention to it, you're just going to say, I hate Jesus. And I don't believe the Bible. That's all stupid. And you're going to take this one decisive step. Yesterday, you were a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. Today, you want nothing to do with it. That's not what drift is. Drift is a slow but continual process of moving away. Not only is drift a a slow and continual process of moving away, the the Greek word used there, it, it had the idea of being careless with it. So it wasn't even so much as a decisive saying, I'm done with all of this. It is just cease to be careful to pay closer attention to read, hear or read and heed. And with that carelessness, Becomes a drifting. We become careless in how we listen to God's Word. We become careless in how we study God's Word. We become careless in how we put God's Word into practice. Now, we all know we can be careless in that. We've all been careless in that. We've all sat through a sermon and checked out before it was over. We were at home cooking supper or we were writing on a grocery list or we were doing something else. We weren't paying careful attention. Or we've read the Bible and we started to read Romans chapter one and we get to. But they prove they do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. And we realize I don't remember anything I read in that chapter. My eyes were looking over the words, but my mind was out here somewhere. I was being careless about it. Or we read it or hear it and it pokes us. We know there's a change that must be made. And we think, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll do it. But there's always these other things going on in the moment. We forget. We're just not careful to put into practice what Jesus has said to us through his word. This lack of being intentional. It leads to a slow but steady drifting from Jesus. 
But as we slowly but steadily drift from Jesus, we assure ourselves and anyone who listens, we are exactly where Jesus wants us to be. And we are doing exactly what Jesus wants us to do. So we're taking small steps away and building a fortress to protect us from the fact we've drifted away. And we take another step away and we build on the fortress. And we just continually do it until one day we are super unbelievably further than we ever imagined we could be away from Jesus. This isn't the only warning we get about this for the believer. We also have this. Paul tells Timothy to protect what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly, empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thereby gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, again, they go astray from the faith. So he's talking about believers. He's not warning Timothy. Beware of the unbelievers in your community who are going to stray from the faith. They've already strayed from the faith. He's warning Timothy to beware lest he do what other believers did. And that is stray from the faith. He has to protect what's been entrusted to him. He has to avoid worldly, empty chatter and opposing arguments that's falsely called knowledge. Arguments we've already seen. Calling it knowledge is meant to be that it's more important. It's of higher value. So that reminds us of arrogance and lofty opinions. So what he's warning Timothy against is paying attention to worldly people who talk a lot against God's word, claiming what they're saying is a higher knowledge than what Timothy has. That's what he's warning against. And listen, our culture, there is no shortage of worldly, empty chatter with arguments opposing the clear revelation of God's word. All the while saying what they have is a higher knowledge, and a greater education, and they are wiser. And when we, he says to avoid them, not, not even to rebut them, but ignore them, avoid them. And when we start to give heed to those things, we start to build fortresses in our minds. Because who doesn't want to seem smarter? Who doesn't? I mean, that sort of, this is smarter, this is better, this is more than what your simple country preacher knows. That, that, uh, that appeals to us on a fleshly, sinful, prideful level. We all really want to think we're a little smarter than other people. And so these things appeal to us. They appeal to our pride. We know something y'all don't know. I'm a little smarter, a little more spiritual, a little wiser. 
but I'm really just building a fortress against God. The end of that is to go astray from the faith. Again, the fortresses are exalted or raised up against the knowledge of God. No one builds a fortress to protect themselves against God and stays close to God at the same time. That barrier pushes us away and away and away until we're led astray, gone astray from the faith. So as we close, we need to ask and honestly answer some questions. Are there areas of our lives where we already know we're hearing but not heeding God's word? I mean, something we already know, an attitude we have, words we say, actions we take, beliefs we have, we already know those are contrary to God's word. And rather than heeding God's word and bringing ourselves into conformity, we're coming up with all of these reasons as to why we're okay. Please understand if we're doing that tonight, we are building fortresses that are raised up against the knowledge of our God. And they will eventually lead us to turn away from Jesus. We must repent of our hearing or reading without heeding. And we must strive to bring ourselves into conformity to God's word. Second question. Have we already started drifting away from Jesus? Let me ask you a question with this. Could you honestly say you are closer to Jesus right now tonight than you have ever been in your life? If the answer is not yes, then guess what that means? It means we're drifting away. Drifting, as we saw in Hebrews, doesn't have to be this intentional act. It is carelessness. Being careless not to take the more earnest heed to the things that have been revealed. Where we are careless in our hearing, we start to drift. Where we are careless in our reading, we start to drift. Where we are careless in our doing, we start to drift. This is without exception. It's with all of us. That's why we're warned to take careful heed. Pay more careful attention. Jesus is always calling us close. He has always opened up the way into the Father's presence from Hebrews 10. We are always being told, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. If we are not there, it is not Jesus who has moved away from us. It is us who has moved away from Jesus. And if we're not closer than we've ever been, we're drifting. We must recognize how far we've drifted. We must recognize it is a problem tonight before the turning away happens. And we must turn back to Jesus tonight. Let's pray.
But Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, O oh God, to be careful about erecting fortresses in our minds. Lord, we've talked in the past that we have enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of these are warring against everything that was said tonight. If we go home and Google what we've talked about, someone in the world is saying this was all wrong. And we can just work out our own belief system, our own value system, our own morality. We don't have to take it into account what you've said. The enemy is planting people in our lives. Teachers. Social media influencers. Friends. Family members. Who are going to tell us not to get too carried away about this Jesus stuff and living for him. They're going to tell us you don't have to just kind of go with all of that. That, that we're under grace and not the law. And then our flesh. I mean, our own, our own internal wiring right now was saying, don't do this. Don't turn away. Don't surrender fully to Christ. Don't change this belief. You have a right to act that way. You have a right to say those things. But, oh God, we have a Holy Spirit who lives within us. And your word assures us that greater is he who is in us and he who is in the world. Father, let your word and your spirit work to smash and pull down the strongholds in our minds. Take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. That we would live for your glory and accomplish your will each and every day. We ask in Jesus name for his sake. Amen.